This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Escaping the Humdrum, H.G. Parry and Gareth Ward discuss with Bronwyn Wiley Gibb crafting stories that take us into fantasy worlds. Gareth has written um, Traitor and the Thief, Clockle and the Thief, and Brasswitch and Bot. Um, Hannah has written Unlike the Escape of Uriah Heep and the um, Declaration, de- declaration, declaration of the Rights. Declaration of rights. <laughs> no, they're a mouthful, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and her third one of that is the second one of the Magician series is coming out in June or July. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to reading that one. Yeah. Um, I was going to start um, with asking you about both about how in both the worlds that you've created – it's it's our world, but there's a twist, and I wondered why you started off doing that as opposed to just straight away creating a completely fantasy world. I, th- I think with Traitor and the Thief, uh, it all started. Where I was sat and I was going to write something, and uh, the idea wouldn't Sin be an interesting name for a character just popped into my head. So the main character in The Traitor and the Thief is a boy called Sin. I started thinking about why he was called Sin, uh, and then I decided it was going to have a Victorian setting. Uh, and then as I started writing, I just put weird and wacky things in, so it sort of then spiralled out to be more of a, a divergent from true Victorian times. So it, and it, I put weird and wonderful technology and machines and, and stuff in there, so it became steampunk almost by default. But, mm. yeah. I think my imagination just ran away with me, probably. What about yeah. you, Hannah? Ah, I mean, it's a... For, I actually started... I mean, even though Declaration of the Rights of Magicians was my second book, but I started writing it first um, before I started Unlikely Escape. And I think with that one, it was just a matter of I was reading a lot of history and um, I really wanted to write about it, but I wanted to write about it in a way that I just sort of thought if you introduce magic to it, you can sort of, instead of just writing a straight historical novel, you can use magic to kind of explore things and tease things out and highlight certain things that you're interested in. Um, Plus, you know, just in general kind of make it, I don't want to say more fun, but um, add a new element to it that would be kind of interesting. But with... um, with Unlikely Escape, I started writing it second because, part, and it was really coming off the fact that Declaration was so research-heavy and world-buildy because it was set back in the 18th century. And so for Unlikely Escape, I sort of thought I'd try and make it as easy for myself as possible. Um, it was a mistake because it's never easy. But, um, yeah, so I sort of thought I'd write about things I know really well. And at the time, I was living in Wellington, and I was studying um, and teaching English Lit. So um, that's where it kind of came that I was like, all right, what if I if I set it in Wellington, but um, I can have characters from books come out into the middle of Wellington, and then what could you what could you do with that in terms of writing about our relationship with reading and our relationship with book characters and the way, yeah, thinking about the way we experience books and and reading. So, um, yeah, it was a slightly different answer for both of them. But, yeah, in both cases, I think it was just a way of saying how can we use magic to talk about something that's happening in our world? Mm. And so the two bounce off each other really well. 
Yeah, I um, I quite like how you're still able to explore very human problems mm. because all the exciting technology, which makes yeah. the books reading your books yeah. really fun, because you're kind of thinking, oh, that sort of links up to this thing or whatever. They're still human, and yeah. they're, and they're yeah. still having to confront yeah. their own frailties and how they're awful to each other sometimes, and how they have wonderful. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and I think. So I write for young adults, and um, I, th- I think you know you have to. It has to be really interesting because you've got to keep people engaged. But I, I always like to try and put a subtext in there. Um, you know, with I guess with Traitor and the Thief or the Traitor series, it, a lot of it's about the pointlessness of war, and then with Brass, Witch, and Bot, it's sort of I, I guess about discrimination and prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with the, with the you know all the technology and the weird and wonderful worlds and with, and with magic, I, I think you can use it to take real world problems and put a different light on them. Or perhaps you know if you if you're writing a book uh, you know that was that was true to life and about real world problems directly, it might not be interesting. But you can take sort of the core of real, real world problems and then put them into your story and, and perhaps particularly for young people make them understand them in a different way than they would if you were just trying to do it sort of you know mm. if you were just writing about the holocaust or something like that it may not get across but if you put it into a different context hopefully they might understand it in a different way yeah and i found um reading magicians mm. that it was it's set in the french revolution um and in and partly in Britain during that time and also in what became Haiti. And you, you say yourself, people were doing things at that time that she, she, you can't make up. Yeah. They, 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 they're, they're acting so strangely, the sudden explosion of um, feeling and violence and going too far... And, and getting on getting on this trip of well we're gonna we'll just kill these people and that will make this better but then actually we need to kill these other people and then finally finding yourself on the guillotine. Yeah. Um, magic was a really clever way of of propelling that and making making sense of what was going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think yeah with the with the French Revolution in particular, I was yeah I was really interested in that path for how do you get to you know we're overthrowing our oppressors to you know, well, maybe, you know, we, we need to take power in order to do that to, well, now we're in power, we need to do these few things so that we can stay in power in order to keep doing good things until the point where you just keep, you keep making these kind of bargains with your, well, they, they I should say, keep making, but, you know, you keep making these bargains with yourself that like, well, I'll do this in order to get the power to do something good and so forth. And so, yeah, I think that's where a lot of the magical side of that came from where, I, you know, not, not as a, as I say, not, not as a replacement for the, the human element, but just a way of bringing out that human element of what if you were, li- you literally were making a bargain with something <laughs> inhuman or something you didn't understand mm-hmm. and how would those conversations take place and how do you use that to explore? How do you get from, yeah, how do you get from the point where you're the, the righteous revolutionary to the point where you're the dictator who is, you know, mm-hmm. killing thousands of people, you know? And something yeah. similar goes on in, in the two traitor books. Sin gets pulled into this sort of... It's slightly Hogwarts, slightly paramilitary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, they, told, they say to him, we do awful things, but we have to do them. We have to do them to preserve the status quo yeah. and the status quo. We're not going to question whether it's good or bad, but we have to do them. And then um, the brass witch, they say to her... 
yeah. Bob says we do awful things, but we have to do them. Yeah. And we, but we have to not do too much of them, and we don't have to, we mustn't enjoy it too much. Yeah. I, th- I think you know. I, I guess um, from my time in the police and in the military, you see that there, there's there's no black and white solution to some of these things. There is a huge grey area, and it's where you sit in that grey area. And I, th- I think certainly in, in the stories, yeah, they. You know, they have to. They do have to do some terrible things, and, and that's sort of the main character, Bot. You know, people fear him to some degree because he will make the decisions that no one else can make. Mm. But if he doesn't make them, you know, hundreds of thousands of people will die. So it, it, it is that sort of. It's that balance. Mm. It's it's like the you know, is it the trolley car problem where you you pull one lever and two people die, or you leave it and five people die. So do you pull the lever? You know, yeah. you have to make those those decisions. So I, I think it's interesting to explore. Uh, and I guess from sort of my time in the police as well, you know, sometimes there is no right answer. You know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And you just have to try and do the best that you can under those situations. So I was trying to sort of get some of that through into the story that, you know, sometimes it's not, it's, there's not always a clear moral choice. You know, there's, it's a grey moral choice at best. I, lo- I liked how that darkness was balanced with the sheer sort of joyfulness of the inventions. Yeah, of, of, yes. that, that's really fun. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh yeah, I, I just I love creating things, I, and I quite like. So, so with the Traitor series, I, uh, for some reason, I decided there was no. They hadn't, although they're scientifically advanced, they hadn't discovered electricity in the way that we understand electricity. So, at the moment you put that limitation on yourself, you then have to start thinking about your world in a different way. So, how do they have lights? Well, I started thinking, well, you know, we have glow sticks today, so maybe they pump these liquids around to their lights that light them up and you start coming up with all these other ways of achieving things that today we just take for granted with electricity. Mm. So I think putting a restriction on yourself makes you think outside the box. Mm. And I invented iron glass, which is glass that's got the strength of iron. I started thinking about what, you know, what fantastic buildings could you make if you, you could make it all out of glass and things like that. So it, you, your mind just starts racing once you start getting away with it. Yeah. Hannah, when, when you came up with the reading people out of books, yeah. did you kind of want to do it yourself? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Complete wish fulfillment, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, uh, say it, it kind of came, like the very early origins of it came about when um, I was doing a class on science fiction film way back and um, at university, and um, the question ended up going around the classroom, what would you do, what magic powers would you have if you could? And, yeah, I sort of said reading people out of books, so which is because, yeah, of course you would. And um, I think, obviously, I'd been... I think I twist on that was I'd been reading a lot of... I mean, I had been reading books that where people can do that. Like, I'd read Encart by Cornelia Funke, where characters come out of books. Um, I've read The Air Affair of, and ja- you know, and Jasper Ford, where people go into books. Um, so I think what I... The sort of quirk I, or twist I wanted to put on that was just when I'd seen it done in these books, it was always, I guess, if you, yeah, the, the characters kind of existed in their books already, and when you read them, they came out. And I was interested in, in the idea of the fact that when you're actually reading, um, you you know, no two people really read the book the same way. You know, like if you're picturing a character coming out of a book everybody imagines that character slightly differently and everyone has a slightly different interpretation of that character. So what I was kind of interested in is what if people had the power to do that 
but what came out of the book was sort of 50% what was in the book and 50% the way they were reading it. Mm. And I think, yeah, that was where, yeah, that, that was where the kind of interest was. For me. Did, did you really just want five Mr. Darcy's? <laughs> oh, oh, at least, at least. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of my favourite things. And I, I re-watched the series a couple of weeks ago. I was showing somebody who hadn't seen it. And yeah. I was like, this bit, this bit is the bit that she well, says in the, in the book yeah. about them wandering around and three of, three of the Mr. Darcy's, you know, uh, in sopping wet clothes. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen in the book, but because we've seen Colin Firth in sopping wet clothes, that's how he appears. He likes jumping into bodies of water. Yeah. <laughs> Both, all, all your books sort of struck me as being um, about family and, and friendship. Um, the, um, the magicians, in, in, especially in, in France... Uh, well, actually, that's not true. Um, Robespierre and um, Camille and Danton are all... Yeah. They're devoted to each other, and they have some of them have known each other since they were children, mm. and then they end up sending each other to the guillotine, and um, the, the two brothers in, in Uriah Heep mm. um, have this real tension between them, um, almost mostly felt entirely by the elder brother, who is fed up with the younger one. Um, mm. And then Sin, who has, who's had this life with um, this Fagin's character, the end, um, and then he go he he goes to this Hogwarts slash paramilitary institution and and becomes devoted there. And as he mm. he's one of the things he talks about, um, it was really hard living on the streets in, in this gang, but the gang always had each other's back. And Braswich suddenly finds somewhere where she belongs as well. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really interesting. But the, 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 those very human things in amongst all this magic and exciting inventions. Yeah. I think I think story is about person. At the end of the day, it's about it's about characters. And yes, yeah, Sid did have the family of the gang, and then he sort of replaced it, I guess, with perhaps slightly more moral family of, of yeah. the sort of the spy organisation, if you like. But there was always that, that sense of family to it. And he was an orphan, so he was trying to really find out what happened to his real family, if you like. So that was his story. And then in Brasswick, she, she's never really felt like she belonged. Again, she was an orphan. Uh, and uh, she wanted to be an engineer, which they didn't allow in those times. And then when she gets these powers, she finds... Um, she's recruited into the regulators who sort of hunt down people like her. So she's got a family, but she's also got guilt about the fact that she's actually, you know, potentially one of the bad people hunting down people like herself. So there's, there's again, all sorts of these moral conundrums that she has mm. to go through. And she meets Octavia, who's a brilliant character, and is just sort of a bit like a mum to her, so that's cool. Yeah. And has tentacles coming out of her head. Tentacles <laughs> and a fabulous dress sense, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Was it hard to write the... Um, the brothers' relationship was it was that the difficult thing to get into? No, it was the easy part, really. I mean, yeah. I mean, f- first of all, I mean, when I start writing anything, the first thing I always start is is just kind of floating dialogue, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'll always start. So I need my kind of I need my two character or two or more characters, and I need their relationship. And so yeah, and I usually that's just how the book starts with writing down the conversation that they're bantering off each other and seeing where that goes. And yeah, yeah, no, um, with the, the two brothers that you say, it was, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were easy and they were so much fun, <laughs> really. Even the, the difficult, painful bits, there's something about that 
sibling energy that kind of, um, you know, and again, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm an older sister, so um, I have a way easier relationship (laughs) with my younger sister than, you know, than this, but, um, but yeah, there's just something about the way that um, you, as a, as an older sibling, I can test, you know, you both feel very protective and yet at the same time sometimes slightly irritated by your own protectiveness and, Mm. you know, all those really interesting dichotomies that that come up, yeah. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, it was was fun, really. Mm. Um, Just... I just wanted to wonder something about your your processes because you, you touched on that you need yeah. you need to start with um, a, a dialogue. Do you sit, do either of you sit down and map out what the story is going to be? Do you keep a list of all your inventions and what they do, and um, you keep yeah. using the same information? Yeah. I, I don't really map out. I, I normally I know the beginning, I know the end, and I, I, so far I've followed a sort of a fairly common structure. So there's a there's a crisis in the middle. I know what that is, and then I have two major turning points. So I generally know what those are. They may change as I write, but I start out with that's about all the plotting I do yeah. physically, but generally. I, the story would have been like floated about in my brain for quite a time beforehand, so I guess mm-hmm. the subconscious has worked out quite a lot of a lot of it before I start. And then I don't. I, I, it was interesting. You said you start with floating dialogue. Yeah. I was just thinking, how do I start? And I, I, can't, I don't really know how I start. It just <laughs> yeah. happens, you know. And yeah. Stuff comes onto the page, so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really have a process other than that. I, you know, it's planned out, and then I just start writing. I guess. Do you start at the start or? No, normally, I do start at the start. I, I know some people write the ending and then go backwards. Although, I've got sort of a, a new story that sat with my agent, which may or may not go anywhere. Um, but I, I, I wrote the start, and then I thought, that's so fantastic, that has to be the ending. So then I had to, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I threw, I had to throw out all of the book that I planned and put that to the end. So, yeah. yeah. So that was an interesting one. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, you, you're following history. There's not much choice. Um, there's, there's certain things that have to happen at a certain yeah. point. And... Um, but the Uriah Heap, um, did, did you know what characters were going to come out, or did it just sort of happen as it, as it evolved? Ah, oh, yeah, I mean, the characters kept... I mean, I started out with a few, and they kept kind of layering up, so that was good. Um, that was one of the few stories I did start with the first scene first. Um, usually, um, say, usually I'll sort of have a vague idea where the plot's going to go, but it's really just I'll sort of pick the bits that I'm excited, most excited about, and I'll write those, and then eventually I'll sort of go, okay, so how are these going to link up? (laughs) And just go back and read them, and eventually kind of, yeah, so it's like a very patchworky kind of thing, and hopefully the plot reveals itself by the end. But, um, yeah, Um, with the characters, yeah, I mean, I, I, I say I started with the first chapter, so I started with Uriah Heap, and I knew I was going to expand out into Dickens, and then from Dickens kind of came other the other Victorians and you know the other eighteenth century and stuff. Um, but yeah, otherwise it was yeah. I mean, I, it was I was cheating really because I just picked books that I liked and <laughs> that I wanted to have in there most of the time. So so yeah, yeah. Which ones are interesting? Are there particular authors that you enjoy? Or, or that inspired you to, to start writing, or that that you wanted to emulate me, or um, e- either of you, either of me. either or both um, about me. Um, ah, ones that inspired. I mean, like this 
this book direct, I mean, say this, this book directly, I was saying it's probably, you know, it was probably coming from Jasper Ford and, 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 and Cart, you know, Quality of Funky directly. But um, in general, I think it was really sort of a, the, the kind of foundation that book was really a mix because it came from, on the one hand, I was reading a whole lot of, you know, especially at university, I was reading a whole lot of classic authors. So I really, you know, I really loved Dickens. I really loved Oscar Wilde. I really loved Jane Austen and the Brontes and Mary Shelley and, you know, and that whole thing, um, that the non-fantasy side of it. And then fantasy-wise, I say I grew up reading, you know, C.S. Lewis, obviously, um, Tolkien, I was reading sort of Neil Gaiman and V.E. Schwab and um, Susanna Clarke, you know. So um, it was really, I think, with, with this, with that book particularly, it was about, um, on, you know, taking those, those two kind of separate, you know, sets of authors that I loved and seeing what you can do with putting the two of them together. And I guess, um, say, Declaration was kind of similar in that I was reading a lot of historical fiction <laughs> authors and a lot of fantasy authors at the same time and so it was sort of about finding <laughs> finding ways to merge the two of them mm. what about you um i think when i was sort of much younger when i was at university i guess sort of terry pratchett douglas, douglas mm. adams oh, absolutely yeah. love those um and then i guess when our children were sort of in their teens um I started reading lots of the things that they were reading because I wanted to see what they were reading. Um, and so there was, a, there was an author called Robert Muchmore who does the Cherub series of books. Uh, and I own two bookshops with my wife, Louise, with the pink hair there. And um, <laughs> I was wandering around the bookshop thinking, what series of books do I wish I'd written? And it was probably the Cherub series. So I started thinking, how could I take this concept of kids training to be spies and not totally plagiarise it, but just make it my own. And that's sort of how, I guess, the spying element of Traitor came about. So that was that. And then there's, a, there's an author called Jonathan Stroud that I love who did a series called Lockwood & Co. And, you know, that's one of those series where I'm just, I'm just kicking myself because I didn't invent that series because it's, <laughs> it's ghost hunting. I would have loved to have written that. Uh, and then, I guess, for grown-up stuff, uh, Ben Aronovich, who does the Rivers of London series mm. um, because... I, He's, he writes about this police officer in the Metropolitan Police who sees a ghost and realises he's special and then gets seconded to the, sort of the magic department of the Metropolitan Police. And, and having been in the police, I think he writes sort of police officers perfectly. You know, I, I thought he was an ex-cop because he was so onto it, but he's not. He just obviously hangs about with a lot of dodgy people. So, <laughs> But, yeah, so I, I, I love those. It's quite a diverse reading, but you know, I, I love my fantasy-type stuff. Yeah. 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 And this session is called Escaping the Humdrum. Do you feel that's what you do when you settle down and start writing? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I just go off in... Well, I escape the humdrum most of my life, really. I'm, I'm off in my head most of the time, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, in a different world. But I, I just love making things up. I, you know, I, I live in the real world, but I'd much rather live in the worlds that I write. So it, I think it's just... It, it's, there's nothing better than being able to take these crazy ideas you have, put them on, you know, into a book, and then hopefully people read them and love them as much as you did. So that's, you know, I, I love it when we get people coming into the bookshop and saying, oh, you know, start talking about these fictitious things that you've made up as if they're real. And to me, that's just, that's just brilliant. That's mm. awesome. So, yeah, no, I, I, I love making things up. I don't want to be in the real world, really. No, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful because you 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 grow up escaping the real world by reading, mm. you know, constantly yeah. as much as possible, and then yeah, so it, it is. It's wonderful to be able to do the reverse and put the stuff, you know, that's in your head back into a, you know, and create create a book of your own. And it's a yeah, it's a cyclical 
yeah. When, when I, I, and I always found when I read, you know, you're always like, oh, why did they do that? Why did the character do that? So when you write it yourself, you, you have control of these yes. characters. So that, that, <laughs> sometimes you have control. Sometimes they tell you they want to do things that you don't want them to do and you have to go with it. But, yeah, it's, yeah. it's when you read a book and you're frustrated, you say, oh, they should have done this. When, when you're writing it, you can make them do that most of the time and unless some... they escape from the book. Exactly. <laughs> and sometimes you realise exactly why they did that frustrating thing and you find yourself yeah. doing it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hannah, you did a PhD in English Lit, mm. focusing on fantasy writing for children. Yes. Um, did that affect... Why didn't you decide to write fantasy for children or young adults? Oh, I mean, the sort of flip answer is it's very hard. <laughs> it's much harder than it looks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so which, yeah, I'm sure you, you know. Yeah, I have great respect for people who write for children because every time I've tried, I tend to end up, yeah... I don't know, yeah, it tends to end up varying into adult writing. Um, also partly, I guess, because, part, I mean, I might, yeah, when I was writing some of these books, I was writing about children's literature, and so therefore, you know, I think if I started writing for children, it would it would kind of not be as much of an escape from what I was doing, you know, mm. academically. But, um, yeah, I think with with unlikely escape, at least I was I was kind of looking at putting some of the stuff I loved about children's books into adult books. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of um, there was I mean there's a lot of flat out children's book characters, um, but like the sibling relationship thing came from reading a lot of children's books. Um, that, because children's fiction has a lot of sibling relationships for obvious reasons, because when you're a child, you're growing up with your siblings and you have to deal with them. And I sort of was like, I'd like to see more of that in adult books. Mm. So that's partly why there's an adult thing. There's a lot of, um, I tried to put a lot of adventure and a lot of secret passages and, you know, <laughs> mysteries and digging around in tunnels and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, in that, that sense, you know, that was how it kind of led into it. But, um, yeah, no, I know. I think there's a real art to writing for children. I'd love to try and get it right one day. Are either of you interested in writing other, in other genres or, write, or writing straight fiction with, with no... Uh, I don't think I can write straight fiction, but I have, um, I've, I'm a complete geek. I play this game called Dungeons & Dragons, and um, I play this wizard called Tarquin the Honest, and I started blogging about him, and I love writing him so much that I ended up writing a novel, and that's just been picked up by sort of a New Zealand publisher. So, oh, um, so that's going to come out next year, hopefully, um, touch wood. Um, yeah, and I've just started doing a D&D podcast as well. Kiwis and Dragons, if anyone's <laughs> um, But yeah, so I've got, I've got a sort of a grown-up fantasy novel. I say grown-up because if you say adult fantasy, it sort of gives the wrong idea. Mm. Um, yeah, coming out next year, touch yeah. wood. So yeah. yeah, well, that would be exciting to yeah. look forward to. And we've, of course, got the next Magician's book. Yes. But um, and which is, because it's being published, you must. Uh, is there anything else in the pipeline that you're already... Yes, yeah, yeah, there is. Um, I I'm not sure how much I can say about it at the moment, but I yeah, I'm writing a yeah, I'm writing a book now. Again, it it sort of started out as a as a children's book, but grew into an adult book at the moment. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, as I say, it's sort of one third sort of um, classic British fantasy, one third Cal- um, Celtic myth, and one third Robin Hood with magic. So we'll see Ooh. how it goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you if you'd both read us a piece, perhaps. Sure. Um, perhaps you could start. Cool. I normally read the start of the book, so I hate spoilers, but I'm going to read Chapter 2 because I really like Chapter 2. So. <laughs> or some of Chapter 2. I won't read too much because, you know. Um, 
The cell was sparse, one table and one electric chair. On the table sat a file neatly bound with brown twine. In the electric chair sat wrench, neatly bound with, bro- uh, with brown leather straps. Somewhere behind her a transformer hummed, ready to deliver 10,000 times the voltage required to light the single Edison bulb that hung flipper- flickering from the ceiling. The heated filament cast an orange glow on dirty lime-washed walls spat- splattered with blood. It was like a vision from hell. Wrench shivered, imagining that for many it had been. The cell's heavy iron door swung inwards. The regulator with a scarred face marched into the room. He was taller than she remembered, his pointed beard accentuating his angular face and reedy body. With a theatrical air, he locked the cell door, pocketing the key in his waistcoat. He approached the table and placed his hand flat on the file. I am Captain Flemington of the Aberration Regulatory Cabal, and I will be your interrogator for today. He no longer wore his hat or goggles, but his grey eyes were as cold as the smoke-tinted glass. Wrench swallowed, her mouth dry. There was something deeply unwholesome about the way he said interrogator. Although, to be fair, being strapped in an electric chair in a dungeon below Clifford's Tower hadn't exactly left her with a terrifically positive mindset. I've been watching you for some time, Miss Wrenchester Harish, Flemington Flemington paused, stroking the point of his beard, letting his words sink in. Wrench gaze flipped to the file. It was over an inch thick and stuffed with papers and photographs. What had they seen? What did they know about her? In fact, I've had a special interest in you ever since the crash of the Drake. Wrench flinched as if she'd been physically struck. It was eight years ago, but the horror of that day was permanently stamped on her brain. The Drake had been a revolutionary new express train designed by her father, a miracle of modern engineering. On its final test run, it had crashed, killing seven, including her parents. Flemington smiled, obviously pleased with the hurt he'd caused. The regulators became involved when they could find no reason for the brakes locking on. I wasn't part of the original investigation, but I have a theory about what happened. Would you like to hear it? Wrench was certain that she wouldn't. Whatever the monster in front of her said, he only meant to cause her more pain. And I remember when I came across that in the book, the first thing I thought was, oh, this is a bit, this is a bit real, it's a bit violent, and he's, yeah. they're, in a, they're in a room with blood on the walls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it's um, quite startling, and... Um, I, I really like the character of the brass witch. Was it, was it hard to write a female character, or did you just think, oh, I'm just going to write a teenager? Um, no, I, I don't know. I, I didn't. So, some people say that um, she's got elements of someone in the room in her, but um, I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> you know, str- stroppy and hard-nosed and, you know... Um, I'll stop now before I get to <laughs> um, No, I, I, I don't know. I, I think um, certainly... In, in sort of Traitor, there's a character called Zonda, and, and sort of a lot of her was based on my daughter, not in any sort of physical way, but uh, or our daughter. She's, she's never, she's always been very set in her mind of what, mm-hmm. how she wants to be, and she didn't really care what other people thought about herself. And I think Zonda's like that. She's happy in herself, and, and so she was certainly an inspiration for that. Mm-hmm. And, and then, yeah, I'm not really sure where Wrench came from. Um, yeah, she's yeah. very fully formed. She's very yeah. She she is very yeah. She's she's. Uh, I, I love her. She's a great character. You know, she knows her mind and she knows what she wants to do. And she's not going to take any crap from Bot. Who's you know? <laughs> and I just think you know the the banter between the two of them. Mm. I, I love writing that so much. It's so much fun. Mm. Would you please read for us? Sure. Okay. I was gonna. Yeah, I'm doing the same. I'm reading from pretty much pretty much the start because I you know near the start because I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, where are we? Okay, um, so this isn't quite, this isn't exactly the first chapter, but it's, this is the jump back from the first chapter, so more or less. Um, 
I was four and a half years old when my brother was born. He nearly died before he drew his first breath. Everybody thought he was dead for a long time. Complications during delivery, the doctor said. They had abandoned all efforts to resuscitate him and wrapped him in a blanket, ready to be taken away and cremated or whatever they do to infants. My mother was holding him when he started to cry. Everyone thought it was some kind of miracle, and most of them were sure he'd suffer some kind of long-term brain damage. That's very funny in retrospect. I wasn't one of those there to see the miracle. I was meant to be. He was born at home in our rambling old house out in the country. The plan was for me to be there too, to pace the living room with my father while my mother fought to bring him into the world. For some reason, they thought this would be good for me. But he came early by quite a bit, setting the pattern for the rest of his development, though not his punctuality. And I'd been sent to stay for the weekend with Grandmother Sutherland. I remember being brought to see him the next day, bundled up in his crib in the room I'd helped paint for him. Apparently, all I could talk about before he came was the fact I was going to have a little brother. Apparently, I was very excited about it. And yet, I must not have really understood what it meant, because I remember being silenced by surprise and awe at the sight of him. How real and solid he was, and yet how small and fragile, the way his huge dark eyes reached into mine and tugged at my heart. I'd expected the baby to have blue eyes like me. I remember that mum and dad left the room for some reason, perhaps to go get my things out of the car, and he began to whimper fearfully at being on his own. And I remember knowing at that moment that I would do anything, I would kill the whole world to keep him from being scared or hurt. Don't worry, I said, I'm here, I'll look after you. I can't remember if he quieted at the sound of my voice, probably not. He never really gave me moments like that. But I remember I was going to be the best elder brother ever. I wasn't one of those children who was jealous of a new baby in the house. I was going to teach him everything I knew. At eight months old, he began talking, really talking. If he ever needed the usual infant sound play and noises, he worked them out himself in his head, without any help from us. When he spoke his first words, they were in proper sentences and grew more proper by the day. About that time, I taught him the names of all the colours in his room, which was mostly yellow. I think that was the last time I ever taught him anything. By two years old, he was reading my books. By three, he had read most of our parents. People started to call him a prodigy. Others, more cautiously, used the term highly gifted. And at four, he began to bring people and things out of books. It started small. There would be scents lingering in the air after he'd been reading. A cake baking, fresh country grass, ocean spray. Our mother found him with a funny-looking paperweight one day. When she asked where it came from, he said, 1984. (laughs) (laughs) And then one day, she walked in to tell him dinner was ready and found him playing with a cat in a hat. (laughs) Most people, I think, would be justified in losing their head when their four-year-old conjures a Dr. Seuss character from thin air. Mum impressively kept hers. She told him firmly to put the cat back right now. I doubt Charlie had any idea he could do so, but he obeyed and found he could. Then she took him by the shoulders and told him he was never to bring anything out again, ever. To be fair to him, I think he really tried and still does, but apparently there are some things even he can't do. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it makes, it, I remember coming across that in the book as well and thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be really interesting. And I wonder who else she's going to bring out. Any of my favourite characters going to come out. And um, I think I talked about this before with people. You finish the book and you spend quite a bit of time thinking about who you want to bring out and what they might be like and what the things that you might have brought to the character and what that would have changed about it. So that was... um, 
Yeah, a real pleasure. Um, one of the things I both noticed that you do is you don't really describe how the magic works too much. It's sort of left to our imaginations, which is quite an exciting thing. And in particular, I noticed that um, your Lovecraftian tentacled baddies um, in the um, in Brasswich and Bot, you don't you don't really describe them. Was it was it sort of deliberate? You know, there's eyes and squish and tentacles. Yeah, I, I think I guess you know my inspiration was quite clearly H.P. Lovecraft, and I, I think sort of in, in his writings, the things are so hideous, they send you mad immediately, so you can't really describe them because nobody sees them. So I, I guess I was trying to go, go with that in that you, you, you give the reader a, a little bit and then they will make the rest up themselves because they're too weird and hideous to describe, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and, I, and I think, you know, quite often, just given the with a lot of my writing, you, you, uh, you try and pare it back, so you, you give the bare minimum of description to let them, to let the, the reader add to it what they want, I think. Mm. And it's, I guess it's a bit like when you read the characters out of the book. You know, we mm. all bring something to a book when we read it, and I try and leave most of that to the reader, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And both, play, both, all your books have a real sense of, of place. Um, Wellington with the Uriah Heap and Haiti and... Um, France and Britain, um, and then Coxford mm. um, with with uh, the first two, the traitors, uh, so the thief, yeah, the traitor, traitor ones, thief. and um, Brasswich is, is York. York. Yeah. And are you, did you have to go and, and spend time there? To... Uh, well, I grew up near Oxford, uh, mm. so it seemed like Coxford is just basically, I just changed it so that people couldn't say, well, actually, this street didn't exist or what have you. Because so, I'm quite lazy in research. So, mm. uh, so uh, I loved Oxford as a city. I just thought it was a, a really magical place, and so I wanted to, to put that in the writing. And then I went to university at York, so I, it was, okay. you know, I wanted another historic city, and it, that just seemed like a great place. And also, you've got the sort of the religious context in there with the Minster, and, and York Minster was just such a fantastic building that, you know, mm. I, I wanted to include that. Mm. And Wellington, just because you like yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, Wellington, because I'd, yeah, say, I'd, I kind of did what Rob does, did in the book, which is go down to, um, go down to Wellington for university and completely fall in love. So, um yeah, especially because I think when I was writing that book at the time, I'd only just finished my degree, and at the time I wasn't sure if I was staying in Wellington or not. So it was a little bit of a homage to it, and, you know, possibly, you know, especially since I was thinking about... I didn't really leave it. I ended up going about an hour out to Carpety Coast. But, um, you know, at the time I wasn't sure. So, yeah, it was definitely... It was kind of a homage to that and all about the little places that you dig out is I mean even now I think I think Wellington as a student is kind of a different place to Wellington as an adult you know so it's all the little kind of things you find out in the little places you know definitely and I was curious when I was reading magicians mm. what what made you involve Haiti in in the story because there was quite enough happening with the French Revolution and there's quite enough happening with the abolitionists in Britain, and you could have just stuck with them and said you've put all three into the mix. And yeah, what? Ah, I mean, it wasn't, it just seemed 
very important. Like, you know, mm. it just seemed, you know, I was, you know, looking at it, especially since with it really started out and, you know, I was really interested in, you know, the abolition movement in Britain. <laughs> and obviously, as soon as you start doing any research into that, you start realizing that the Haitian revolution is was, you know, mm. incredibly important. And so, yeah, if you're looking at, you look. I mean, I, I sort of skipped the American Revolution because the book starts just after. Mm. But if you're looking at all the revolutionary activity that was happening in the world, obviously the French Revolution was huge. The American Revolution had just happened. But, you know, the Haitian Revolution is, is massive. You know, it's the first and only successful slave rebellion, mm. <laughs> you know. And it was it was all part of that same historical movement. Mm. And so, yeah, it just, it, yeah, it just tied in, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, I always want to ask, how do you come up with the names of the characters? Because they seem so right when when you've written when you read the book, it seems yeah, this is what they've always been called. Do you experiment? Uh, I, I rarely change a name, but I do think very carefully about them. Um, quite often, when I'm walking the dog, um, name things. I find walking the dog really inspirational. I just like uh, love, love, stupid love of life. You know, it just some, does something to me. And so, a lot of the names in Trade of the Thief came when I was walking the dog. I, I could distinctly remember exactly where I was when Eldritch Moons popped into my head as a name for a character. So I do think about them, um, but I don't, I don't really know how I decide upon them. They, they just sort of come to me, I suppose. Mm. I, uh, I, I, could, I couldn't pinpoint. I, I, I don't have a method, if you like, for selecting names. Mm. They just, But they do have to feel right. You have to feel that is that character's name, and then I think you know at that point. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. basically have got historical people, and people have already been named by other authors. Yeah, so, so I, I cheat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, they've all got their names. Yeah, yeah, more or less, yeah. I say the fun one, and, and unlike... I mean, obviously, the, the brothers had names, but they were by... They were fairly ordinary names. Um, but, yeah, they did have to sound right. And um, But um, the fun one was Millie Radcliffe Dix because um, she was the character, the only one I, I made up. And I sort of made her up because I wanted a character that came from that Nancy Drew Famous Five tradition and there wasn't one single one that kind of embodied that whole tradition. So I sort of made her up. So I just was searching for something that sounded like, you know, one of those, you know, Nancy Drew, you know, fam- in a blighting kind of heroine. So that was fun. But yeah. We, we did this as a book club book in yeah. our shop. We had people, uh, when we were discussing it, said, I actually Googled her to see if she was a real, <laughs> you know, if she was yeah. a character out of a real book. Yeah. No, I know, I know. I feel, yeah. I've got people get angry at me for making her up and still she's mm. not real. I'm like, well, I'm Pre- sorry. you need to write her books. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Spin off. Yeah. <laughs> You're both now pretty much full time writers. Are there things about it that surprise you about about you know when when you thought your dream oh I'm going I would like to be a full-time that surprise you or or that you don't like or that you you wouldn't have started if you'd known ah what do you think um for me personally it's that I don't make any money out of it I guess (laughs) (laughs) I thought if you wrote a book you make a lot of money it doesn't happen for me personally but I I, but there's nothing you know there's nothing better I love it I was talking to some people yesterday I just said I was you know I'm happiest when I'm writing you know so Mm. for me it's just wonderful and you know what you lack in financial recompense you get back from you know kids who come up to you and you've changed their life and hopefully when I'm long gone and dead and buried you know there'll be some kid who said oh I remember reading that 50 years ago or something you know so Mm. I, I just love that and I love you know, I've, I've always written, so 
I'd be writing anyway, so it's just a dream. But now other people get to, you know, other than my long-suffering wife, get to read the stuff <laughs> that I've written. So yeah, so that's that's great. Uh, but I, yeah, I wouldn't swap it for anything. I, lo- I love it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I love it too. Yeah. I mean, in terms of going, yeah. I mean, I I do. I absolutely love it. I wouldn't do anything else. Um, in terms of going full time, I think. The, the one thing I, I, I mean that I, re- I miss about when I was you know at university is that when you're at university you're kind of because you're going to you know you're going to lectures because you know whether you're teaching or you're um, or you're studying you're going to lectures and you're kind of being constantly introduced to new ideas and books and constantly um, your imagination's constantly being stimulated so a part of I think that the difficulty in going full time is that you have to kind of find ways to replicate that yourself and not just, you know, sit at your computer all day, you know, on Twitter or something instead, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's about, yeah, try, trying to, you know, make sure you keep doing that um, and find places to volunteer and find, you know, things to do and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, but, and obviously there's, Publishing is, is like the actual publishing side of it. Everyone tells you going in that it's it's difficult and stressful and, you know, the thought of um, people reading and reviewing your own work is terrifying. But at the, And before you go in, you think, you know, that's fine. I'll handle that. I don't care what anyone thinks. And then, of course, you suddenly realise, of course you do, <laughs> you know. So so those are the difficult bits. But I don't say, I don't want to, over, you know, mm. overplay those because it's wonderful. It's the best job in the world, absolutely, you know. We're going to open up the floor questions um but before i do that is there anything i haven't asked you that you want to say or tell us or uh, that we haven't talked about not off the top of my head i don't, oh, I don't think. think so yeah no. but maybe things might occur to yes. you as yeah. yeah do we have questions um, I was wondering if you've got any tips for how to beat writer's block, if you guys ever suffer from that, um, and also tips on how to get published in genres such as fantasy, sci-fi, YA that perhaps are less popular or less sought after by publishers. Um, so writer's block, I, I don't really suffer from writer's block particularly. I, if I'm stuck on something, it's normally a plot problem or where's it going to go, and I generally walk in the dog works for me. Um, the other thing I'd, I would do, if I am completely stuck, I would just write anything. Just, you know, start writing. And even if you have to lose 300 words, that just gets then, you know, even if it's a rubbish idea, by the end of writing that rubbish idea, then it will it will go. So I guess that's that's how I... But I don't massively understand writer's blocks or the really suffered from it. Getting published is really hard. I mean, I, I was lucky... I entered um, Traitor Manuscript into the Tessa Duda Awards, the Storylines Award, and it won. And because of that, I got the publishing contract, you know, uh, hand on heart. If I'd just submitted this manuscript round to um, publishers, I, I suspect it would have just gone on the slush pile and into the bin. And, and that doesn't mean that, it, you know, it wasn't any better or any worse. It's just so hard. So I, I guess... And spec fic is really hard to get published in. There's the, you know, even though it's it is widely read, for whatever reason, you know, I think publishers are scared of it. So, you know, and, and and you have to then go to the specific spec fic publishers rather than it being a, a broader read. So, uh, with my like my fantasy novel, I, I tried to get that into a more mainstream publisher, and, and even though, you know, it is going to be massive, and you know, the next 
big thing. (laughs) 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 I couldn't get, you know, I ended up, it was was quite a niche uh, or a a smallish New Zealand publisher, but, you know, I'm I'm delighted that it's going to be picked up and we'll see see that that goes and I'll prove everyone wrong. Um, Yeah, so uh, probably competitions, getting short stories and stuff, you know, if if you can get some, there's lots of fanzines and magazines that will take spec fic short stories or anthologies, so I guess that starts getting you some writing credentials, so that might be a way to do it. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. So for for writer's block, um, I guess say I mean, <laughs> apart from pace the lounge and cry and you know <laughs> scream at your pets and everything. Um, but um, but no. But I mean, um, I think the the thing for writer's block personally is trying to pinpoint because it's kind of easy to go. I can't write anything and just group it under writer's block. Whereas it's usually for me, it's usually about narrowing down. Why? What is the specific problem? Like, is it that I've hit a plot problem and I can't work that out? In which case, the thing is to to target that problem and bounce, you know, bounce ideas off people. Sit there and type some random ideas into a, you know, document and find out what works. Is it that you know you're you haven't got a grip on the characters? In which case, you know, go, you know, do what you need to do. Go and you know, find some character questionnaires and ask them a bunch of questions. You know, do anything like that. Um, sometimes it, it honestly is just that you've been staring at the screen too long and you need a break from that whole project. So in that case, you know, feel free to take a couple of days off and come back to it. You know. Mm-hmm. When you're fresher, especially if you don't have a deadline, then it's wonderful, um, you know. So yeah, so I think I think that's kind of yeah. So the only tips is like try and narrow down why you're blocked, and then then it's a problem you can fix rather than a sort of you know nebulous yeah like character failing yeah. yeah then exactly then the sort of like condition that you've just suddenly fallen into exactly yeah um, and yeah in terms of getting published, I say I went the absolutely traditional route which is that I had a manuscript and I just um I went I went over I basically essentially because I didn't really know how to get published in New Zealand I only knew how to get published you know internationally so I went I just queried a whole lot of literary agents and I just looked for any that represented the kind of thing like I was writing so anything that one who did fan adult fantasy essentially um I queried a bunch of them. Um, some of them ignored me. Some of them um, asked to see more, and I got an offer of representation from one of them, who's one, um, still my agent now. She's wonderful, um, and um, yeah, and she sort of yeah. I've been working with her, and then she shopped it to all the right editors, and you know, and we've been working together on various things ever since. So you know, I think it isn't. I think sometimes when you're trying to get published. Um, you know, people are kind of, uh, I mean, you know, people kind of tell you that you need to know, you know, you need to go network or you need to go to conferences or you need to do something. But, uh, you know, and that works for a lot of people. But I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I start out, yeah, it, sometimes the tradition, you know, the going by the book works as well, you know. So you just query some agents and see if you can find anyone. <laughs> I think there's a lot of luck involved as well. Oh, 100%. I, I think, you know, 100%, yeah. And there's nothing you could do about that. Yeah. You, you've just got to keep at it because you just have to get on the right place at the right time. You know, it might be your manuscript is perfectly good enough to be published, but they've just published something similar. So even though that might have made it that time, it's in the slush pile. So you, you've just got to yeah. stick with it and, yeah, hope for the best, really. I guess. Yeah. It's a huge amount of... It's persistence and also, like, don't make sure that... 
you know, you're you're not rejecting yourself first, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, because I don't don't kind of think, oh, don't try that because there's no way I'll get in. Yeah. You know, just give it a go. Yeah. I, when I when I do sort of writers' talks, I, I quite often put something up called a Venn diagram, which is sort of you know interconnecting circles, and there, there's craft. So you know you've mm. you've got to hone your craft so you're writing good enough, and then you've got persistence so you don't give up, and the last one is luck, and where all those three intersect, that's, exactly that, that's it. where it's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Mm. So a bit of magic needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah really, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, anybody else have? Do you find dialogue difficult? I mean, do you wander around and listen to people on the, um, as you're walking the dog or um, <laughs> what, and thinking, oh, that's a good line, and yeah. maybe I can... Ab- absolutely, yeah. I think, I think most authors will, like, hear someone say something and then either make a note of it or will note a particular speech pattern or a person. And, and I, in my phone, I've got, like, screens of weird and wonderful things that I go back and think, what does that even mean? But I've, I've made a note of it. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I think, I think we're always eavesdropping and always trying to. And I find, because I'm quite old now, and I write for kids, it's trying to get the sort of, I guess, the dialogue right for, for, for kids is quite hard. But then again, because they're set in Victorian times, I can lie and say they all talk like that in Victorian times. So, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that works, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I find dialogue the easy bit, so to speak. I mean, you know, like everything else is tricky. Um, yeah, I don't know. But as say, I think for for me, characters kind of start with speech patterns and conversations. So, you know, I can... I can write dialogue for pages and pages and pages, and I have to cut half of it. But um, you know, but yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I find yeah, yeah, definitely, pe- definitely, people you you know things you overhear, and also you know if you're watching, you know, when you're watching television, you pick up on certain actors' speech patterns, and so you know, not that you're necessarily writing that actor, but there's sort of quirks and things you notice that yeah, definitely, yeah, I like hearing stuff like that. Did you see somebody? I think they're sort of right at the back right over there. Yeah. Kia ora, Thank you both very much for your talks. Uh, I've really enjoyed them. I have a question for Hannah, mm-hmm. um, and I'd be interested to hear a little more about your PhD. Was it a critical creative? Was it a critical? Uh, yeah, it was thank just... Thank you. No, thank you. Um, it was just critical. I've never done any creative writing at university. I'm, I'm not sure why, so, yeah. <laughs> but, no, it was um, it was in children's literature. It was, it was looking at... Um, it was basically it was children's fantasy and the epic tradition. So I was looking at children's fantasy and I was looking at um, you know the oh because I, I also had a um, I have a degree in classics. So um, it was looking at, at epics, you know, particularly like the Odyssey, the Aeneid, you know, the Iliad, but also kind of Beowulf and a little bit of Arthurian, which isn't technically epic, but you know Arthurian stuff. And I was looking at the way that that comes up in children's literature, and I was trying to, I guess investigate the idea that children's literature is where the epic, you know, those kind of epic, those myths and epics things, children's literature is where they've gone. So, you know, so, yeah, so that's where we're now looking for, for those kind of retellings. So, yeah, so it was a lot of, a lot of Watership Down, a lot of, um, a lot of Tolkien, a lot of C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman and, you know, all that kind of thing, um, and Rosemary Sutcliffe and T.H. White. So, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, and I, I think, you know, got me thinking about the way we the, I guess yeah the, the way we write myths nowadays and how that comes up yeah we've got time for one more question anybody Louise <laughs> 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 
Hannah, I just yeah. love the way that um, the Hand of the Baskervilles got read out of a book as well. And they oh. kept him, and he was a beautiful pet. Yes. <laughs> I'm wondering, you mentioned your pets before. What, yeah. what are the names of your pets? Oh, God. Um, I've got three, three guinea pigs called Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell, and... <laughs> And Thistledown, um, you know. So that's those three. Um, the, the bunnies are Flashman and O'Connell, which is from Northern Exposure, if anyone's ever watched that. Um, the two mice are, are, are Robin Hood and March. Um, yeah, and uh, and the, the cat, who we've just... She's our new, new, we only just adopted her a month ago. Our last cat passed away at the start of the year, but our, our cat's called Irene Adler. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it so- sounds like you escape the humdrum every day oh. at your house. <laughs> it's chaos. <laughs> Look, thank you both very much for coming to Dunedin and talking to us. Um, I'm really very much looking forward to um, the second magician's book and um, the very important book that is going to appear oh, from yes, the mysterious yes. well, New Zealand the, the, niche the, publisher. The, se- the sequel to Brass Witch and Bot comes out in August, so yeah. that's... Yeah, and oh, then, that would be exciting. Yes, and then the, the Tark with the Honest epic yeah. comes out next year. Yeah. yeah. Everyone will rue the day. Look, <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much for coming. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.